This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. I kind of have a lot going on in that psalm. Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, some of the, as we work our way through the psalms, some of them are a little larger, and we're going to have to take sort of themes as we work through them. Some of them are a little smaller, and we can sort of walk through a verse by verse. And so, because we have... Uh, a little bit bigger of a psalm and, and kind of a lot of things going on. I'm going to attempt uh, I'm attempt to do something a little different maybe than, than we do most Sundays. I, I, wanna, I want to walk through kind of broad strokes the, the whole psalm to give us kind of like just an idea of what's going on um, so we can just look, take maybe a step back and say, okay, I, I have a sense, at least I understand like kind of what's going on here with David in his life. Uh, and then we can sort of connect that uh, to what it means to see Jesus, to see Christ in the psalm. So we're going we're gonna to kind of get a broad stroke of the psalm. We're going to try and, and, and uh, understand that as we walk through, how does that connect to Jesus in the psalm? And, and after we do that, we're going to kind of pivot and say, what does this then have to do with me? <laughs> you know, uh, most of us are probably not going to go to bed this evening and pray that God uh, puts to shame anyone that's that's warring against me, you know? Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Um, you can talk to me about that if that's where you're at. Um, and maybe you're at that place in a, you know, <laughs> there's some, we'll get to that. Uh, but we're gonna kinda, we're gonna kinda just take a broad strokes on the Psalm, try to figure out what's going on here, and then shift to, okay, uh, since David is in a unique situation where people are after his life, um, what do we do with that? How do we make sense of, of David's prayer against these enemies who, who shouldn't be his enemies? Even, even he says, like, this is not, the situation isn't right. Um, so yeah, let's pray and ask the Lord for help as we walk through this psalm and as we then try to make some application and, and think about that together. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, um, and I guess I think of Christians who are in very different situations as us, um, whether that's in parts of the hemisphere where it's dangerous to profess Christ as Lord, whether that's in parts of history where, um, yeah, just just proclaiming your name would have been uh, more of a scandal, would have been um, more of a threat to a person's well-being. And I'm really thankful that we're here this morning and um, you know, traffic or, or our children were probably some of the more difficult things we had to deal with. And I imagine most of us were not concerned for our life. Um, and that's a blessing. And it's, it's, a, it's a great privilege to live in a time and a place where um, we can freely come and proclaim your name and sing your songs and rejoice. And um, yeah, I'm thankful for that. So Lord, I pray that as we look at this psalm, that you would give me words that were clear, that you would help us have a sense of what's going on, that you would, uh, through your spirit, just demonstrate the glory and the majesty of, of your ultimate servant, Jesus Christ. So I thank you for just the chance to consider these things, Lord, and you know, just asking again for your help as we, as we go through this. In your name I pray, amen. So I kind of, my outline... Um, my outline for the psalm as we kind of walk through the psalm, and I, the words on my notes, yeah, here we go. Re- rejecting God's anointed. Um, I, I, when I say uh, rejecting God's anointed, uh, I'm using that word uh, intentionally because uh, we know that this is David's psalm. It starts at the very beginning. It says, of David. 
So we know that David, the the king of Israel, uh, has written this psalm, but we also know that David uh, went through a time period in his life where people were seeking his life while Saul was king and he was uh, merely uh, he was anointed. So there's this, there was a time where, where oil was poured on him uh, through the prophet, was revealed that David would be king, but he had a, a long stretch of time where he was just going to be king and he wasn't king yet. And so it, it would seem like, um, because he talks about uh, how God delivers the poor, because he references himself as 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 the servant of God, uh, there's no language in this psalm that indicates that David is in a uh, in a dangerous position as king. And so, a lot of commentators believe that because he's not using some of these language, because he had when he is king, he's had there's there's specific psalms that, that talk about his son trying to overthrow him. So there there's some psalms and. And, and poetry around struggles that David has had while he was king. But more than likely, this particular psalm is while Saul is seeking his life and people that he was once close to because he, he served in Saul's court, he was close to Saul's son Jonathan, just people who are generally close to him in his life have now been um, sort of either manipulated or just trying to like save their own skin, but the, the people around him have turned on him and are seeking his life. Uh, and a lot of that, and we won't, you know, we won't get into kind of the history of that in the Old Testament, but a lot of that has to do with this idea that Saul, the, act, the, the, the acting king, the king that is uh, still on the throne, is very jealous, very upset, and is, is sort of leading the charge to go after David even though God has made it clear that David will be the next king. So, so Saul is sort of using all of his, uh, his kingly authority to get all of the people who were at one time even close to David uh, within, the, within that, uh, the courts or within the, the service of the king or in the military, whatever it happens to be, to sort of turn all those people against David. And so although he's been anointed, although he is, God has promised him that he will be king, he has not yet been enthroned. He is not yet sitting with authority and power that he will as sort of the story moves along in the Old Testament. And so we're in this position where it's interesting. Uh, if you, I mean, we're going to be in just the psalm for the first part. And after we kind of work our way through the psalm, I'm gonna, a couple of verses we'll be in, and I'll have those verses on the screen. But if uh, you want to follow along, the best thing is just to have your app or your Bible open to Psalm 35 because I'll, I'll kind of be skipping around some of the, the verses in Psalm 35. But I'll try, to, I'll try to give you a heads up. But it's interesting, he says in uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, they repay me evil for good, but when, when they were sick, I, I wore sackcloth, I afflicted myself, I, I prayed with head bowed. He's, he's sort of indicating that these are people who were involved in his life and that were close to him. And he's saying, when, when I did good for them, they repaid me with evil. When they were in, when they were just sick, I was concerned for them. I had care. I I, I was I was someone who who get, uh, uh, was compassionate for them. And it seems that he seems to be indicating that these are people who are sort of in his close, in his sort of personal sphere there. And then another um, verse, verse nineteen, it says, "Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes." 
for wrongfully my foes. And, and there's other Psalms where David's like, look, these are the enemies of God, the Philistines or, you know, whatever nation was warring against God's people. And there's some clarity at different points in the Psalms where it's like good guy, bad guy, you know, like this is, there's, there's some, there's conflict there. But for him to say, these people are wrongfully my foes, it's just another indicator that these are people sort of close, these are people that would have been sort of in his community these are people that maybe should recognize that he served Saul faithfully or recognize that he would be the king because he is anointed. And yet they're, they're doing all of these things to kind of go after him or, or make his life miserable or ultimately to destroy him. And so I, I think it's, so this is kind of like the situation that David is in. And if we are to project that, Forward to the ultimate David, if we're to sort of look at the lens of Jesus being the 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 ultimate David who would be on the throne, and we've we've kind of gone through some scriptures and come back to that at different times as we've worked our way through the Psalms, and um, we're not going to go through all those again. But I think it's easy then to see that situation and look at Jesus and what eventually brought him to the cross. Like it wasn't, he, he, was, he was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. And we, we use the, we say uh, Jesus Christ. And, you know, the joke is that Christ wasn't his last name. You know, Christ was a title. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the word anointed. We're saying Jesus the anointed. So we have the anointed one who comes and is, should be welcomed by those close to him. He grieves over his own people who don't recognize him. It's actually the leaders and the rulers, the religious people, the people who know the scriptures the best, who see Jesus and say, I want to destroy him. It's even his, of the 12 disciples, when Judas betrays him, I think it's easy for us to say like, you know, like you have a friend group and someone does something terrible and you're kind of like, well, that makes sense. That was, you know, John or whatever, you know? Like, you you like you, you have some people that get in trouble and you're like, okay, I know, yeah, not surprised, you know? But when Jesus says, one of you will betray me to the 12 dis- disciples, what do they say? They say, is it me? Is it, is it him? Like, they don't know. They're not like, oh, it's obviously Judas. So Jesus has a close friend, someone who has lived with him for years, who's part of this like close-knit family, ultimately be the one who rejects him and betrays him. So in this kind of a situation, what does David do? And this is sort of the, the situation is giving us these, these three points where David asks for God's help, David asks for God's vindication, and then David points to God's servant. So those are sort of like the broad strokes of, of this psalm. And I want to hit a couple of points to just, as we, as we look at the, the psalm as a whole, David's in this situation where there are people who are wrongfully pursuing him. There are people who should be his friends. Or they're, 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 they should be unity. There should be a, a recognition maybe of what he's done and who he is. And, uh, and yet there isn't. And look at how he starts in verse one. He says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. David is very intentionally, and we'll look at some of the other verses. David is very intentionally 
pleading with God to be the one to reconcile this situation. And I think about when there's conflict or someone is uh, accusing me or there's a situation where maybe we should have some measure of unity, but we don't. And it's easy, I think, in our own sinful place to say, I'm going to be the one to make this right. I'm going to be the one to ensure that this is fixed. And David spends quite a few verses pleading with God to be the one to step in and resolve this situation. If you look at verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, there's like, let them, let them, let them, let there. He's, he's asking God to, to, in a sense, bring some of the genuine consequences of their own wickedness. He's not saying, let me, let me, let me, let me. He's not saying, let me step in, God, and deal with this. He's saying, God, I'm going to ask you to act, and I'm going to say, let, let them turn back and be disappointed. And he's, he's asking this to God. He's, he's, he's seeing this out to God. He says, let them be like chaff before the wind with an angel of the Lord driving them away. For without cause, they, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. This is, this is an unjust situation. And he says, let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And this is verse eight. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into destruction, to his destruction. And then in verse nine, he says, if, these, if you, Lord, if you step in and act, if you let the natural consequences of the, the things that they're doing be the result uh, and it sort of play itself out. In verse nine, he says, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. My soul, like every part of my being, if I'm not the one resolving this, if I'm not the one dealing with my enemies, but the Lord is the one who steps in and deals with the people who are coming after me, then, then that results in more praise and glory of God. Which think the, I mean, if, if there's conflict and you step in and fix it or make it right or, or uh, be the one to set someone straight, and I'm not saying there isn't a, a place for this, but if our heart's desire, if our motivation is ultimately for me to be the one to resolve it, who gets the praise and glory for that? I do. You do. And if our desire is for God to be the one to step in, for God to do something uh, amazing, for God to allow the natural consequences of some of the things they're doing to fall on them, for, for God to be the one to even change hearts or to, to turn things around, and God steps in and does something, then we give him praise and glory. We worship him more because he's the one that stepped in and resolved that situation for us. I like in verse 10, he says, all my bones, like everything in my most inner being will say, oh Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. And if we were to take David's situation, I mean, he... Uh, I think it was a passage we did just recently. Yeah, the, actually, just recently as in last Sunday. Cole's like, Cole's like over here I did. <laughs> he wasn't in a good situation there. He was, 
and he was before Abimelech and he and he was in like the lowest of low and no one was helping him and he was he was just cast out because of all the sort of friendly fire and God rescued him and so he's he's actually pleading with God as I'm like outnumbered, as I'm overwhelmed, as I'm the one who have, am I, I'm admitting this reality that I have no ability to sort of affect this situation. And if you step in and rescue me, then God, everything in my bone will reach out and praise and glorify you. He's in this difficult situation. He's asking help from God. And I, again, this is not I think we can look. <laughs> it's uh, we can look at what, how, the 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 trust that Jesus had as he as he walked towards the cross, as he as his life was beginning to take shape, and he was moving himself towards what would ultimately be the rescue of his people in taking on the judgment of God. As he's, has he trusted God with the the most ridiculous fake trials? that they were putting together to, to point their finger at him as he, as he trusted God with the secret arrest that happened in the, in the middle of the night. Even before all of that, what is he pleading with his disciples to do? Then they keep falling asleep. He's like, pray with me. Like, let's, let's cry out to our heavenly father and see him step in and act in a way that's, that we will just glorify his name and praise his name. And we know, obviously, that as he died on the cross, as he suffered... As, as he trusted God into that situation that led to a much lower place than anything David ever experienced, we know that he was rescued and that God answered that prayer and rose him from the dead. And I think when we're unfairly accused, which, man, this is just a, the next section, we're talking about a vindication from God. Um, we don't use that word vindication very often and I kind of just was like I like googling it to see like what's the context where that word does show up and it came up in a handful of like court cases where you know government political party A did something and every political party B was like no you can't do that that's not constitutional or vice versa you know like there's back and forth and then the, the courts would decide and it was like government A was vindicated <laughs> like they could do that or or oh position B over here is vindicated they can't do that you know so the, the courts sort of hash it out and, and then there's this like public statement that says like everything you were doing was right or they hash it out and they say everything you were doing was wrong uh, you're not vindicated so I think when we're in these situations where we're kind of like unfairly accused or, or there's conflict where there shouldn't be, um, we want vindication. Like we just want people to know that maybe our heart was in the right place. We want to know that we were trying our best to do what was right. Uh, and, it, and it didn't maybe go the way that we wanted. And I, I think the situation here, I, I kind of, I like the comparison in verse 12, he says, They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. It's kind of where we get bereavement from. It's like just super distressed. Like I'm just torn up on the inside. And he goes on to kind of explain the situation. When they were sick, look at how much I cared for them. When they were struggling, look at what I did. Like, 
my soul is torn up. I mean, again, we can point forward and look at Jesus and say, his whole life was giving and caring for others. Even the disciples were like, Jesus, can we get lunch? You know, <laughs> I'm hungry. You know, you, you know, they said, you know, he has to eat. They're like, aren't you hungry? You know, <laughs> you know, they were thinking, I'm starving, Jesus. We've been out here all day. Um, he falls asleep in the boat because he's exhausted. Daily, hourly, constantly just giving himself for others. And then look what happens. But at my stumbling, in verse 15, they rejoiced and gathered together against me. Jesus is beat and arrested and the crowd chanting, crucify him. He didn't do anything to deserve that. No wonder David can say, my soul is bereft. Everything inside me is just torn up because I've done nothing but offer myself for their good. And if they were hurting, I grieved it. And I stumble and fall and they're gathering to destroy me. We would want vindication in that. Like if that's, if you offered yourself for someone, if you, I mean, and I know, you know, we can look at these ultimate examples in David and in Jesus, but I'm sure many of you have done, I mean, man, think about children, right? Like you do something for them and you care and you put yourself out there. And what do they do five seconds later? <laughs> Give me space, you know? That's like JJ's favorite thing to say. I'm like, bro, <laughs> I'm just like, like sacrificing so much for you. <laughs> it's not always that, but <laughs> but it's a good example. It's like kind of it's easy to laugh about when they're three. Um, talk to somebody with teenagers. Um, but you you give yourself for others. You offer yourself. You you care for someone who's struggling, and then all of a sudden you trip up. Maybe maybe you do make them. Maybe you maybe you do sin. Maybe it doesn't. Even, we don't have specifics here. But we, we fail. We're not perfect. We're not like Jesus. We, we do something wrong, and all of a sudden the wagons are circling, and they're ready to point everything out to you. And we want, and we want a little bit of vindication there. We want to say, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Look at what David says. He's again asking for the Lord to rescue him. In verse 22, he says, you have seen, O oh Lord, be not, you, you get this. Like, you know my heart. You know what I've done. You, you're not unaware of everything that's going on. Be not silent, O oh Lord. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O oh Lord, my God. And it's oh, those all capital L-O-R-D is, uh, is like Yahweh, like the I am. He's using like the, the, the name of God, uh, the most sacred name of God saying, vindicate me, O Yahweh, my God, according to your righteousness. He's like saying, vindicate me according to your standard. You see, you see everything that's going on. You need to be the one to vindicate me according to your standard. 
according to your righteousness. He's asking for vindication from God. And we know that Jesus was vindicated. (laughs) There's an empty tomb. He's risen. He's been enthroned. He's ruling and reigning. And in in a very real sense, David experienced it as well. God rescued him from Saul. Saul continued to reject God and ended up not going so well for him in that front. David could have taken things in his own hands on a couple of occasions, but didn't allow God to kind of work that out. And then God enthroned him. And and from then on out, all of Israel was like, oh, if we could only have a king like David, talk about vindication. He'd be forever remembered as like their best king. And how much greater now, thousands of years later, are we here to worship and praise and give glory and sing and meditate on and consider Jesus Christ himself? He's sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. And now, unlike David, he truly has a kingdom that goes on for eternity. He's been vindicated. He's been vindicated. He's been proven right. And then we get kind of this last section where he talks about the servant of God. And I think this, this section really only does make sense in light of, in light of Jesus says, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice in my calamity. This is verse 26. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. And he compares it to a different group and says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant." Now, we have a, a kind of a, I think you got to be careful with biblical passages is, you know, we can open it up and, you know, if we're to go to work and send an email that says, let the Lord bless those who delight in how right I am. You know, like, I don't, uh, you know, we just like, you know, we don't, we don't want to, we wouldn't even like say that out loud, but, but even to like think like, man, if everyone was just on my side and, and then God could bless those people that were, you know, with me on whatever this was that's going on. And here's David. He's not saying that he has the perfection of righteousness. He's, he's prophetically writing and, and ultimately pointing towards who Jesus is. But in the situation with Saul, he very much handles himself in a righteous way. He trusts God with what's going on. So there's a, a measure of relative righteousness there. And the people of God should rejoice when the king of God operates in a way that's consistent with God's law. So he's, he's saying there, others should actually rejoice and be blessed when they, when they see that I'm approaching this in a way that honors God. But at the end of the day, the righteousness that we delight in, the righteousness that we want, the righteousness that we worship, the righteousness that we, we want to shout for joy when we consider is the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of our, of our perfect king, our savior who from beginning to end did everything absolutely perfect and right. And for people who reject and mock and consider everything that Christ has done is something not worth rejoicing in, 
they will be disappointed altogether. There will be disappointment there. Anything less than Jesus Christ himself will disappoint. Anything less, anything, anything less than Jesus Christ himself will lead to disappointment and shame. But those who delight in the righteousness of the servant of God it says we'll, we'll praise all the day long. That's where, where true joy, true peace, true happiness, true fulfillment is ultimately found in Jesus Christ himself. So what do we do with this? How do we learn from this kind of a situation? I want to look at a few New Testament passages because we're not, um, you know, I'm not uh, God's anointed one. Um, whether in the Old Testament nation of Israel or whatever we want to project forward to the kingdom of God today, um, we come here to worship and celebrate because of what Jesus has accomplished. Uh, it's finished. There's a, there's a, very real sense that the the vindication that Christ has sitting on the throne, we don't have to re-worry about that. He's not going to be brought back down. But I think it comes up in the New Testament quite a bit that you and I are going to do our best to bring good, that's our, our mission statement, is to bring good to others as we're formed into the image of Jesus, we're formed by God, we do that together, but as you bring good to others, as God has defined it, as you bring good to people as God has communicated it, not everyone is going to be a big fan of that. Not everyone is going to get behind you. Not everyone is going to support that. I think that's what Jesus is, is telling his disciples in John 15, Verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's like, I've been, Jesus is like, if you're doing the right thing and you're not getting a good response for that, Jesus is like, I've been there. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than their mas- than his master. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted Jesus, then those of us who are united to him and desire to see his rule his good and beautiful law, his definition of good, right, and beautiful spread across the world, if that's our desire, there is going to be conflict there. 
There's going to be, your heart will be in a good place and you're going to desire to care for someone or to see someone change or to present something that you're saying, look, this is really good. And they say, actually, it's not. They may actually think you're unusual or strange or, you know, the bigot word gets thrown around online a bunch, but, you know, no one spends any time online, so we don't got to worry about that. But they're, they're, we're gonna we're gonna commu- we're gonna communicate things about who God is that's that's good, right, and beautiful, and, and it's not gonna be received very well. I think thankfully that's not all the time, right? Like there's there's very attractive and wonderful things about even a community that cares for each other, even about things that we're we're knit together in love, and people see that, and there's a there's an attraction there. Even Jesus says that. You will be known by your love for one another. That's, that's inherently something that people are drawn to. And I would say when I have conversation with people who are connected to our church, or even if they're, they're in for a minute or they move, a lot of the most common thing that I hear from people is like, it seems like you guys really know each other, care for each other, and there's like a genuineness here. I think that will be very attractive. I'm not trying to say that there's nothing attractive about the Christian life. But Jesus is saying that it, that like him, if they persecuted Jesus, then they will also persecute you. And then I think another thing to consider is we might say, okay, well, I get that. You know, there's there's these sort of extreme situations. Um, you know, I'm reading a biography of a guy who went to this crazy island where people were cannibals, and this, there's like a story he tells where like they had a near-death experience, and the guy that was with him like was kind of just freaked out for like the next couple of days and he's like and I slept great that night because this is kind of normal like it's a weird way he writes it but he's like I, I've had so many near-death experiences I was just glad it was over and passed out because it was stressful and my friend was like freaking out for the next couple of days because there's certain situations where it's just like a little bit sketchier um a little bit sketchier than than normal and uh so I so I think another thing to consider is this reality that if we're not we're not dealing with the the crazy missionary situation, we're also not in Israel where we can visually look out the door and say, "Oh, that nation over there, uh, not so good. Israel right here, good." You know, so there's there's a little obscurity in that situation, and I think that Peter addresses this in a way that's helpful. So uh, let's look at. First Peter, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 9 for a second, and then we'll jump forward a little bit. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. This is Peter talking to Christians, and he's saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a it's a kind of a loaded way that he presents that. He's writing to Christians and he's saying, you're a holy nation. You know, we talk about uh, your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. Like we like to, you know, that's a, a, a popular. We talk about um, uh, the idea that we want uh, 
the good, right, and beautiful to, to, to spread across the world. He's, Peter's talking to Christians who are spread out. And he's saying, because you're united to Jesus, because you're part of how God brings his good and spreads it throughout all the world, you're a nation, a holy nation, a separated, a set-apart nation. In Christ, you're a nation that's actually doing conflict with those around you. You're, you're, you have a national identity in the kingdom of God. And with that national identity as, as priests, as those who actually go between God and man, there's actually an order, there's a way, there's a structure, God, there's a way that God has designed our lives to look in our homes, in our businesses, as we even as we approach things like politics and government, like, like we're ordered a certain way that we're going to be set apart from other nations, Christians, our community. And we can go to another couple of places. I feel like every time I bring this up, I have to say it. He's like, our weapons aren't like swords, you know? Like, this isn't a call for us to, like, get armed and, and go overthrow something, you know? Our weapons are the very words of God that are meant to destroy things Paul says, destroy every stronghold against the knowledge of God. Our king is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, and our words are meant to communicate that this is the way life should be. And when you fall short, there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's the gospel, there's the good news that Jesus has taken on the punishment and is risen again from the dead and is, is now working in and through his people to change us, to transform us, to, to actually make us in a way that we love and desire and value the structure and the way that God has designed things to work. He's moving in our hearts to make us more like his son. But as a nation, we're also saying this is how it ought to be. And when we say this is how it ought to be, not everyone is going to say, oh, I like that. <laughs> Sometimes God says things to you, this is how it ought to be. And we say, I'm, I'm going to ignore that passage for a long time. There's going to be conflict. And I think this is why Peter says in chapter 4, beloved, <laughs> friends, community, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When you communicate to the world how our king operates, when you are trying your best to bring good to others as God has defined it, don't be surprised when people push back against that. Don't be surprised. It's just another one of those times where I'm like, it's like with kids, you know? Like, you're not hurting them. You're like, no, you should eat. This is good for you. And they're like, ah! You know, like, it's just like, I mean, you know, because they're just, that's just their, we're wired internally to push back against the way that God has ordered the world. 
But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is sitting on the throne, has poured out the Spirit, has offered forgiveness, and is inviting people into this nation so that we, more of us could be transformed and so that more good, right, and beautiful could be changed and transformed all over the world. But we're going to have conflict when we bring those things to the world around us. We're going to have a measure of conflict. So I kind of want to end with this. I want to end with a couple of things to just consider. If you're leaning into something that's honoring God, if you're working really hard to see our king as ruling and reigning, and to make every thought captive, everything in my life, to order it around him, whether it's how I relate to my family or my friends or my job or I vote or whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm I'm reordering to honor the Lord, and you're approaching some difficulty and it isn't working out, do you go to God for help? Like, is your first instinct to cry out to God to resolve this? Or do you just like double down your efforts? Which usually leads to more frustration, more anxiety. Or do you ask God to step in and reorder things in a way that only he can? I think another thing to just consider, maybe you don't have any struggles. Maybe there's no conflict with the world around you. In 1 John, he says, there is going to be conflict, like pretty straightforwardly. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. Is there no place where (laughs) the way Jesus communicates the good is there no place where, where you believe this is the, the way that God would desire to order your life or the life of those around you? Is there no place where that rubs against the world? If that's true, you should ask why. Maybe, is there no difference between you and the outside world? Maybe you're afraid of standing out. Maybe the world's way of doing things is just more attractive. I mean, those are all real things that real Christians struggle with. We can ask for help from God with that. Just be honest with him. I don't want conflict. I'm an Enneagram 9, you know? (laughs) I can help. That's good. I mean, we shouldn't want that. That's the beautiful part of that Enneagram. <laughs> but, but are we hesitant where maybe there should be some because we're a little bit afraid? Or if we think that the world's way of doing things is more attractive, we can ask God to change what we value in our hearts and admit that to him. That's what the Spirit does. That's why Jesus has died and rose again. That's why he's poured out the Spirit to, to because guess what? You don't become a Christian and then all of a sudden are on board with every way, shape, and form that King Jesus is ruling and reigning. 
Like, I wish that was the case. I wish after your baptism, you're like, sweet, I'm like Jesus. Now I'll just be a light to the world. Nothing has, there's no struggle there. This is not how it is. God is actually, as we humble ourselves, as we, as we recognize we're, 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 we're avoiding a sense of conflict, as we ask God to, to transform things inside of us, he's going to be the one to step in and do that and change us and make us more like him. And then finally, I would just want to encourage you and say, if you have been in a situation, if you're in a situation where you're approaching where you're at in submission to God to serve him and you're doing the right thing and you're pleading with God for help, you will be vindicated. God will vindicate you. You will share in the sufferings of Jesus and then you will share in his immeasurable eternal glories. That's what you have to look forward to. Other people may not recognize it. Other people may not see that you're putting yourself out there to honor and glorify God. But like the psalmist said, Lord, you see and you will vindicate me. You see and you will vindicate me. You can be thankful for that. Amen. Let's pray and just ask God for his help in these things. Father, I thank you so much just for all the things you communicate in your scripture to us, Lord. You've, you've truly given us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, I thank you that our ability to engage with the world or how we respond to conflict or, or what happens when we have genuine enemies that maybe misunderstand, Lord, our, our ability to handle that is not where we rest. Um, we, we rest in the perfect handling of these things in your son, in Jesus Christ. And, and we know that because he displayed your glory, displayed your majesty. We know that he's so good, right, and beautiful that you want to work his character in and through your people. You want to make us more like him. So Lord, so I thank you for just the beauty and the, the goodness that can come from your people because of that, because of you, because of your work. I thank you for the forgiveness that's there when we fall short as we do so much. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just genuinely humble us and, and, and draw us closer to you. Not just so that we could worship you and love you more, yes and amen, but so that we could image you and glorify you and look like you more. So I thank you for this time. In your name I pray, amen.